0: Welcome to episode 31, the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model for chronic pain. What happens between the ears matters by Mark Pugh from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello, Clearly Clinical podcast listeners. This is Mark Pugh, Senior Vice President of Product Development and Marketing for Preferred Medical, a workers' compensation pharmacy benefit manager. Glad to be back with you for podcast number two for the Clearly Clinical Library of Content. This course is entitled the Biopsychosocial Spiritual Treatment Model for Chronic Pain, What Happens Between the Ears Matters. If you recall from the last podcast, the first podcast, it was an introduction to the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model uh, and why it is important. This time we're going to dive into two of the primary components of it, psycho and spiritual. So let me read the introduction real quick to make sure that we're on the same page as to what you'll be listening to. This course focuses on on how the psycho-spiritual aspect of the biopsychosocial-spiritual treatment model can complicate or help the management of chronic pain. Ignoring what happens between the ears usually yields poor clinical outcomes. It has been opined that chronic pain is primarily emotional and has been often demonstrated that depression and anxiety accompany chronic pain. In other words, pain is in the brain. Not that it's made up, but that the ability to cope with pain that will likely never go away is largely based on how that pain is interpreted, based on fear avoidance, catastrophization, and past positive-negative experiences. Dealing with these comorbid issues requires the ability to retrain the brain on how to process the pain, such as mindfulness or yoga, and often requires psychological and behavioral treatment such as cognitive behavioral therapy. This course will explore how adverse childhood experiences, resilience, and one's psycho-spiritual identity can impact pain management treatment outcomes and will also review tools that can be helpful in identifying chronic pain beliefs that may negatively influence outcomes like the PHQ-9 and the pain catastrophizing scale. So now that we're on the same wavelength, let me recap very quickly what the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model does. It establishes or recognizes the lack of resilience. It encourages self-management of chronic pain, and it focuses on the whole person. Now, let me, before I get into this particular podcast, give you a great big caveat. I am not a psychologist or a clinician for that matter. So what I am going to present to you is what I have learned from hanging out with some really smart people, learning from some really smart people, reading a lot of the literature from really smart people. But don't take my word for it. Do your own research. So make sure that what I'm saying comports with the clinical reality. But it is a very informed opinion that I have, and I'm going to try to present to you the rationale why focusing on the psycho and spiritual component of the whole person is really important to help people properly manage chronic pain. Now, when we mention psycho, you may think, crazy, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, here's Johnny. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. Not psycho like in going mental, but psycho as in psychological. Or the science of mind and behavior is how Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it. Mind and behavior. And they're interlocked, totally, totally connected between mind and behavior. The mind controls behavior, and the behavior can influence the mind. Hence, psychological. So we're going to talk about that. Now, pain is a good thing not from a masochistic or sadistic approach, but from a concept of, hey, don't touch that oven again because remember what happened last time? You burned your finger. So there's a big difference between bad pain and good pain. Pain from a bad standpoint means that it's an injury. And if you continue doing something, It can make matters worse. So that is a bad pain. That is an indicator, a red flag, if you will, from your body that says, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong, and we need to stop and understand what that is before we continue. Whereas good pain is something that you can push past to achieve your goals. I posted a LinkedIn message uh, article entitled, If Your Knee Hurts, Keep Exercising. If you've had chronic issues with knees or ankles, um, it certainly can become a problem if you're walking or running, and over time, it could produce pain. The worst thing that can happen is for you to stop running or walking, to stop having an active lifestyle because of the pain. Now, if it's bad pain, meaning that there's something physically wrong with you, literally, and the pain... Is saying we need to take care of it, then that's one thing. But if it's the soreness from exercise uh, that oftentimes happens one to two days after you've exercised and you've used your muscles maybe in a way that they're not used to, or maybe you use muscles you didn't even know you had and it hurts, that is a good pain. It's something to push through. So pain is a warning sign for something that's wrong. Um, But it's also something that can be pushed through if it's that good variety. But pain ultimately is in the brain, not that it's made up, not at all. Sometimes when people say it's all in your head, um, I don't know necessarily how to take that. If they think it's all in your head as in you're making it up, there are potentially some people that are. But if it's it's all in your head as in your brain has a lot to do with how you manage and interpret pain, then they're actually right because pain is real. Pain is real. Emotions are real. Now, both of them are kind of squishy when you come to think about it. It's not something that you can do an MRI and say, hey, here's your emotions. You're feeling sad today. Here's your emotions. You're feeling happy today. Um... There isn't necessarily an objective tool in order to manage that, but they're real. They're just as real. If you've ever been depressed or anxious or stressed out, you know that emotion is real. If you've ever suffered loss of a loved one or loss of a job or financial difficulties or torn ACL or shoulder, uh, a rotator cuff issue with your shoulder, you know that pain is the real. But that pain, those emotions, are all regulated or interpreted by the brain. The brain truly controls how you look at and ultimately manage the pain. Because in reality, pain is not the same as suffering. Pain is part of the human condition. It incorporates physical pain, it incorporates emotional pain, it incorporates social pain I When I was in high school, I always sat at the loser's table. And it was funny when I had my 10th year high school reunion, when I went back to meet these folks, um, I sat at the loser's table again. Um, interestingly enough, though, I was voted most improved, which I'm not really sure how to necessarily take that. But anyway, pain, however you slice it, is part of the human condition. If you're a human being, you've suffered some kind of pain almost daily. Suffering, however, can be a choice. Suffering is how you interpret the pain, how you look at the pain, whether the pain becomes you. Uh, I've reviewed since 2012 hundreds of thousands of pages, actually 2003 in reality, Um, so 15 years um, as of the date of this recording, of hundreds of thousands of pages of medical records. um, I've evaluated hundreds of thousands of drug transactions. um, And I have seen in medical records, in reports from doctors, proof that people get self-esteem from pain. It's weird. You tend to think of it as like, why in the world would you do that? But you have been in pain for so long that pain is your name. Pain is who you are. And deep down inside, probably subconsciously, you fight to hold on to the pain because without pain, you don't know who you are anymore. So separating the concept of pain, which is a part of the human condition, and suffering, which is the interpretation of the pain and the, f- and the point where pain has become who you are. And pain is not anything... Um, It's neither good nor bad. It just is all the time. Um, That is a difficult thing. And what we want to do from an acute standpoint, from a subacute standpoint, from a chronic pain standpoint, is to reduce the possibility of it being suffering and actually focus on managing the pain. I have this weird concept that, that pain management has nothing to do with sedation which often happens with the drugs, the prescription painkillers that are taken. But it's all about a conscious choice to manage that pain. So many people I've run into virtually, online, in LinkedIn, on Twitter, um, as well as in person in many of the presentations, I've, I've had phone conversations with folks. I understand that there are people in extreme pain that do not allow that to dictate who they are or what they can become. So separating and distinguishing pain versus suffering. So I want to quote one of my clinical mentors. He's the chief medical officer for Las Vegas Recovery Center in Las Vegas, Dr. Mel Pohl, P-O-H-L. If you want to Google him, he is awesome. But one of the quotes that he did uh, in one of the articles that I referenced in his citations is, When I ask patients about their pain, this is from Dr. Pohl's perspective, eight out of ten words they use to describe their experience are emotional. The three most frequently used terms are anxiety, fear, and anger. But there's also depression, helplessness, loss of purpose, frustration, guilt, and shame. Just an FYI, Dr. Mel Pohl is not just a doctor. But he is someone who's in chronic pain. But that pain has not kept him from helping um, hundreds of people who have gone through their center in Las Vegas. So understanding the concept that these emotional terms, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, helplessness, loss of purpose, frustration, guilt, and shame, they're all part and parcel to properly managing pain. Those come into that psycho component, that psychological component. So what are some of the manifestations of that? Well, one is fear avoidance, which is an excessive fear pain or avoidance behavior. Uh, If you hurt your shoulder and surgery was perfect, there were no complications, you had the best doctor on planet earth, but somehow, somewhere deep inside your brain, you're afraid if you stretch too far, if you Uh, extend your arm too far, if you try to boost your range of motion too far that you're going to hurt it again, you're going to limit that mobility and limiting that mobility, that fear avoidance is going to potentially um, compound itself and actually create the problem that you're afraid of. How about catastrophizing? That's another manifestation, fearing the worst. Those are the people when you're asking them on a scale, on a pain scale of one to 10, they say 473. Or their IBS is the worst IBS that's ever been visited on any human being in the history of mankind. Their flu is going to kill them. Whatever that is, is catastrophizing. It may be legit it may not be legit it may just be perception but whatever happens it's always going to be the worst um either uh in, in from their perspective or from reality and then the third manifestation is perceived injustice they place blame elsewhere there's an unfairness to the system there's an unfairness to the advent of pain and it can never be fixed that perceived injustice can always Um, puts you in a position where you think that you're being wronged and there's something else that's going on and there's always this hint that it's somebody else to blame Um, and granted you may have been in the wrong place at the right time and gotten injured and it had nothing to do with you it had nothing to uh, you're not to blame there were other circumstances to blame for that. It may be somebody else. It may just be, again, being in the wrong place at the right time. And the more you dwell on that perceived injustice, the more that can create depression, anxiety, bitterness, and all of that, those kind of emotions certainly feed into not managing your pain well. So it all of those things the fear avoidance the catastrophization the perceived injustice can lead to anxiety it can lead to depression it actually can lead to increased pain intensity because you're dwelling um, on that pain. You're just ruminating on that pain. And what happens is it creates maladaptive behaviors, that fear avoidance again, where you're not doing what you should do um, in order to manage your pain because you're afraid it's going to hurt. And all of that creates this spiral into the abyss. It just creates this death spiral, if you will. Sometimes that's figurative, sometimes that's literal. Um, you just worry yourself. Um, and uh, don't take care of yourself because of the pain because of those psychological issues those emotions associated with it and they actually feed on themselves and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy over time on top of that there's this concept that the cdc has talked about in regards to aces adverse childhood experiences um, some examples of that from SAMHSA, which is uh, the abbreviation Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, part of the federal government. Some examples of ACEs or physical, sexual, emotional abuse, physical or emotional neglect, substance misuse within the household, household mental illness, parental separation or divorce, incarcerated household member. If you, and that's just a sample. So if you go through that, some of that, it's hard to probably pick a particular person on the planet Earth that hasn't suffered some kind of ACEs. Maybe not to the point of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, but certainly parental separation or divorce with divorce at a 50% rate. There's a lot of uh, kids that have gone through that. And unfortunately, when you go through those things during your childhood, it's linked to risky health behaviors, to low life potential, to even early death. This is according to the CDC, but it also leads to chronic health conditions and decreased resilience. One of the things that comes from the research on ACEs is the potential of a a higher potential of addictive behaviors. Just because you were abused as a child or there was substance misuse within the household or one of your household members were incarcerated, doesn't that guarantee that you're going to be an addict to something, whether it's gambling or sex or drugs or alcohol or, or whatever? Um, but you're predisposed to that because of those things that happened as a child, and those all can layer on in onto the psychological overlay uh, of managing properly chronic pain. So it's not a guaranteed outcome when you've had some kind of ACEs adverse childhood experiences. It's not a guaranteed outcome, but it certainly um, uh, can contribute. To how you may not necessarily properly respond uh, to life's issues. So you've all seen examples probably around you where there's two individuals, two patients, both of them had both of them had basically the same medical condition. Both of them had highly competent medical care. Both of them had zero complications. There were no issues with the care. One returns to work, to function, to life, and one doesn't. One is back to who they used to be, and one went south. So what's different? It wasn't the medical condition itself. It wasn't the medical care, the practitioners involved. It wasn't complications. It was what was happening between their ears, right? There's something else that's going on there that caused them not to be able to respond well to that particular thing. There's a lot of folks that have relatively uh, difficult and complex circumstances around their pain, around their condition, and they are totally okay. Not that they're without pain. They are in pain, but they're not allowing their pain to control them, to manage them, to stop them. And other folks that don't have really as difficult or complex conditions are just basket cases because of a variety of different things. And we're going to talk about some of the screening tools associated with that. Um, But we got to understand that those psychosocial, those psychological, spiritual kind of concepts, those emotions of the fear and anxiety and the fear avoidance and the the perceived injustice and all these different things are having significant effect on their ability and management of that. So the problem becomes then, because of all these issues and many more, there becomes a lack of resilience. And that lack of resilience makes it more difficult to manage chronic pain. That lack of ability to handle things that don't go well. And those things that don't go well could be financial difficulties, could be a relationship breakup, um, could be pain that came out of nowhere, could be a traumatic event, all those different things. Some people have resilience and bounce back and other people don't. The less resilience you have, the more difficulty it's going to be to manage the chronic pain because chronic pain... If you remember what I said in the first podcast, chronic pain in simple terms is pain that you wake up with every morning, that you go to sleep with every night, and it doesn't go away until you die. That can be very, very mind-bending that this is who I am. And chances are that it's not going to get any better. In fact, chances are it may get worse over time. So are you going to succumb to The suffering, to understanding that this is who I am now and I've got to accept my fate and dang it, it's not going to get any better and I'm probably going to feel worse tomorrow and it's somebody else's fault. And you know what? If I walk too far... It's going to hurt more. And so I really just need to stay in bed. And because I'm staying in bed and the lethargy that comes from that, all of a sudden my feet don't work as well. And all of a sudden I'm starting to develop obesity because I'm not eating well either because I can't get out. So I'm just doing fast food. I'm having pizza delivered to me every night. You can see how that becomes a problem. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't actively manage your pain. So what we want to instill in people is resilience. Understand those that have resilience and encourage them to continue that and to identify those who don't have resilience and help build up resilience and give them coping mechanisms to manage that pain that's not going away so there 's a variety of screening tools that you can use to identify those, um, according to physiopedia there 's a psychosocial flag system um, that goes from orange, yellow, blue, and black. so the orange flag system is really trying to identify clinical depression and personality disorders it's a it 's a screening tool it 's not a diagnostic tool, but it helps understand. If your depression is less about I'm not feeling all that great today, but tomorrow will be better to the point where every day is difficult and it's difficult to get out of bed and it's difficult to motivate yourself, etc. To the yellow, which are think and to- and talking in terms of thoughts and feelings and behavior, a little bit deeper dive from a diagnostic standpoint, understanding what's going on. And then the blue and black are more from an occupational standpoint. The blue is about the employee and their workplace, how they think about things. And the black are stuff, black flags are things that are outside the immediate control of the employee, things that are happening at the job. So when you talk about the psychosocial flag systems identifying different things and different levels potential red flags, um, what you want to do is to try to identify based on whichever flag there might be there, what's the early intervention that we can happen, what can we deploy to help stem the tide, to turn the tide from going south to going north, if you will, and what kind of stepped approach can we take, what kinds of treatments can we provide, what kind modalities, what different kinds of help can we provide to them to help them turn that compass from south to north. So early intervention, identifying the stepped approach, but those flags are really, really important to identify that. So I'm going to give you some tools that you can Google. Um, I'll give you the names um, of them that you can Google them. They're very simple. Most of them, in fact, I think all of them are actually free um, to be used. The first one is the Patient Health Questionnaire, and it comes in two flavors, PHQ-2 and PHQ-9. The difference between the two and nine is the number of questions. So, obviously, the more questions, the PHQ-9, it's more detailed, um, and you're going to get uh, more information from asking those particular questions than the two, which is really related to more of that orange flag. So, PHQ-2, PHQ-9. The next one is called the Generalized Anxiety Disorder Screening Tool, or GAD-7. Again, the number is the number of questions. So that's trying to understand what's your level of anxiety and how is that transitioning to uh, substantial clinical issues. So obviously, the higher the score, the more anxious you are. That anxiety could increase the psychological overlay, which is not just the psycho issues, but also the emotional issues associated with that. So you want to understand where they're at on that scale. The next one is called Fear Avoidance Beliefs Questionnaire, or F-A-B-Q. So that test um, or screening tool is more about trying to understand um, what do you believe about f- fear, what what is your level of fear, and what are you willing to avoid in order to, uh, to not Uh, to not suffer from pain, to not feel that pain. So fear avoidance, again, um, can be a very dangerous sign because if you are fearful of hurting yourself again, but everything was surgically repaired and there's no reason to be fearful, you're going to create more issues downstream by not doing the necessary work, exercise, stretching, etc., Um, in order to make sure that that doesn't become uh, an issue and you don't have to have surgery again. Another one is called the pain catastrophizing scale. This was uh, created by Dr. Mick Sullivan up in Canada. Um, And it's a way of understanding how much you catastrophize your pain. Again, that example, someone who um, on a scale of 1 to 10 says 473 that's probably indicative that they don't properly understand their pain. Um, and if they think 473 on a scale of 1 to 10, they're, they absolutely positively believe in their heart of hearts that this is the worst pain that's ever been visited on any human being in the history of mankind. So this pain catastrophizing scale helps understand how they view their pain and how they may um, overestimate their pain catastrophizing. And the last one I'll mention is a diagnosis intractability, risk and efficacy score, or dire. Um, that particular tool is primarily related to pain and opioid use. in trying to understand some red flags when you're dealing with pain, especially chronic pain and um, opioids use at what point is that opioid use as prescription opioids let me make sure let me make clear prescription opioids and not illicit opioids like heroin or fentanyl but at what point will those prescription opioids create more problems Um, um, and again this gets to those Uh, uh, psychological overlays so those tools are really helpful there's other ones that you can look at um, but again i'll repeat them in case you didn't write them down the first time patient health questionnaire phq2 phq9 the generalized anxiety disorder tool called gad7 fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire or FABQ, the Pain Catastrophizing Scale by Dr. Mick Sullivan, and the Diagnosis, Intractability, Risk, and Efficacy Score, or DIAR. Hopefully, those are tools that are helpful. Uh, They're administered by providers, obviously, uh, but there's no reason because most of them are self-administered that a patient can't do them themselves as well. So what is the solution to resilience, to the psychological uh, issues potential? Well, when something challenging happens, you grow. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. When challenges come your way, you're either resolving them or you're shrinking from them. When an obstacle is presented to you You either bust through it, crawl over it, figure out a way around it, tunnel under it. You don't care. You're getting past that obstacle. Or you see that obstacle and go, oh, well, I'm just going to sit on this other side. So the solution, the develop of resilience, of overcoming those psychological issues is when a challenging thing happens, and certainly chronic pain would be considered a challenging circumstance, you want to focus on growth. You can't stay static. It's been said that it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down that counts, it's how many times you get back up. If you've been alive long enough, you know that challenges come your way. Life is not, pretty every single moment of your life life can get ugly some of it's by our actions our behavior our choices sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with us we were in the wrong place at the right time what do you do with it do you learn from it do you grow through it Do you overcome it? Are you resilient and you bounce back up? Or do you not fight, but you flight? You can't deal with it. And when bad things happen to good people, or when bad things happen to bad people, it doesn't matter. When bad things happen, they don't deal with it. They shrink They skulk, they go into a cave, they go into depression. You get my drift? It doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down that counts. It's how many times you get back up. And what we want to instill in people from a chronic pain standpoint is the ability, the willingness, the mechanisms, the tactics in order to get back up getting back up includes managing chronic pain again i can't say this enough managing chronic pain has nothing to do with sedation it has everything to do with managing your chronic pain Living with it, dealing with it, overcoming it, not allowing it to dictate who you can be or what you can accomplish. That's what you want. If you're resilient, you'll be more likely to be able to properly manage that chronic pain. If you do not have that resilience, that is something that you need to work on so cognitive behavioral therapy is one of those tools to help people get past that it was quote-unquote invented in the 1960s by Aaron Beck a psychiatrist it's meant for short-term use usually anywhere from 8 to 12 sessions it can be telephonic or it can be in person Interesting story, cognitive behavioral therapy tends to be thought of in a clinical setting or on the phone or webinar, but a really smart functional restoration program uh, that I know uses CBT throughout the day. And so a story was relayed to me of a, of a gentleman um, who was out riding bikes that was a part of his therapy in trying to figure out what would enable him to manage pain. And the psychologist, I can't remember if it was a psychologist or physical therapist, but a clinician was riding along with him. And at some point, he just says, I can't do this anymore. Well, you know what the, the, the clinician said? Why? What's going on? It can't be a stamina issue because we've been doing this for the past couple of weeks. What's going on? Something going on at home? Did something happen? Did you get a weird phone call from somebody? Did you have a flare-up in pain? What's the deal? That's condi- That's real-time cognitive behavioral therapy. It's helping them process, that individual, helping them process what's going on inside of their head. And when you can help them process what's going inside of their head, they can then help address that. Cognitive behavioral therapy is goal-oriented. It's focused on solutions. It's, Its focus, its purpose, is to challenge and change thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes. So when that person goes, I can't do this anymore. Why? You could do it yesterday. Something else going on. It's not bad pain because we know that you're recovering quite nicely. So it must be the good pain. Let's work through it. Here, ride with me. Let's make it through. Let's focus on um, something that has happened positively in the past. Let's try to uncover. Let's talk about that phone call from the family member that got you all riled up this morning and you just been kind of a uh, hell on wheels all day. Let's try to talk through that and figure out what's going on. CBT is behavioral. It's not diagnostic. Now, there certainly can be uh, clinical concerns that come from that, Um, and usually what happens from a cognitive behavioral therapy, the practitioners of that typically are behavioral psychologists. So they're not psychiatrists, even though it was invented by a psychiatrist. It's primarily psychologists who are doing that, and they're trying to understand what's going on inside their head um, and help change those thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes Back to that concept that uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier about pain becoming a matter of self-esteem. Well, deep, deep down, if it has become who they are, they might fight what's going on inside and they might fight to hold on to the pain because that pain is kind of who they are. So you got to figure out how to manage that and how to change their behavior. That can be homework. That can be thinking out loud. That can be diaries. A variety of different things. CBT is used for a variety of different things. It's used to treat, uh, or to treat, uh, to help deal with anxiety, with mood disorders, with gambling addiction, with smoking cessation, with eating disorders, and managing chronic pain, which also includes prescription polypharmacy tapering. One of the things I have uh, absolutely come to grips with and totally um, believe in um, over the past, well, 20 let's see, 2012, I think, was the, no, maybe 2011 was the first time I visited on-site a functional restoration program and started evaluating what best practices were. Um, And I have come to believe with absolute certainty that if someone is on a dangerous polypharmacy regimen, Meaning they're taking opioids for the pain. And then they're taking the stool softener because they can't poop. And then they're taking the benzodiazepine because they have higher levels of anxiety. And they're taking the sleep aids because they got sleep disorders. And then they're taking the wake me up aids because we did too, do, too good a job of uh, sedating them overnight and all those things are compounding with side effects and drug-to-drug interactions with all the supplements they're taking and the over-the-counter drugs it's just an absolute nightmare in order to solve that in order to figure out a way to taper that down to a more reasonable drug regimen or maybe a modality a way of living that doesn't require drugs at all which is absolutely possible The best way to do that is to do concurrently CBT, is to uncover what could potentially sabotage uh, the efforts to taper and develop coping mechanisms. So there's many uses of CBT. It's evolved over time. And it really, what its focus is, what the goal is, if you will, is again focusing on solutions and it's to establish a personalized set of coping mechanisms. That can be yoga, that can be Tai Chi, uh, that can be mindfulness or meditation, uh, that can be stretching, uh, that can be acupuncture or dry needling, uh, that can be a, a variety of different things uh, that, that can help, both things where you go to a practitioner to help or things that you do um, yourself. How about deep diaphragmic breathing? You know that we would not have as many human beings on planet Earth if women weren't taught lamas. You know what lamas is? Deep diaphragmic breathing. Have you ever been in a stressful situation? You know deep diaphragmic breathing. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. It's amazing how it lowers your pulse rate. It's amazing how it releases endorphins to calm you down and to reduce the stress those are ways to manage your pain too I know people that use deep diaphragmic breathing amongst a variety of different tools in order to manage their pain not everything works for everybody not everybody responds to yoga not everybody can do meditation not everybody can when pain really comes to start breathing in and out you got to figure out what works and cbt is a tool to establish not only the potential saboteurs of that deep deep down in from the psychological emotional issues that might sabotage it but also based on addressing those potential saboteurs what the modalities are. So CBT, there's different levels or what they call waves. The first wave um, was behavioral therapy. The second wave was cognitive behavioral therapy, and the third wave was mindfulness-based therapies. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. There was a Psychology Today blog post on November 1st of 2017. And this blog post defined mindfulness as paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. There are other more. There were other definitions that they described there too. Mindfulness is letting go of taking things for granted. Mindfulness means to return to the present moment. Mindfulness is the self-regulation of attention with an attitude of curiosity, openness and acceptance. Now, when people think of mindfulness, especially in the insurance industry, especially in workers' compensation in the United States, we're thinking what? We're teaching them to stare at crystals and to go to Sedona and sit sit yogi style next to a canyon? Seriously? We're going to teach people to meditate Well, the science is clear. I can give you references to behavioral psychologists that absolutely positively tell you that there is truth to mindfulness being a management tool. In fact, one of my other clinical mentors, Dr. Geraldine Datz, she is an awesome behavioral psychologist in Mississippi. Um, There are... Apps that she recommends from a self management standpoint. Now, she helps people because behavioral psychologists, she understands CBT and mindfulness and all this other stuff. But there are some apps that you might be interested in www.calm.com. Just reading that name makes you feel good, right? Some of the menu items on their website include meditate, sleep stories, music. The Calm Masterclass, subscribe, and blog. So calm.com. Or how about Stop, Breathe, and Think? That's www.stopbreathethink.com. So one of the quotes I found on that website is to check in with how you're feeling and try short activities tuned to your emotions. Or how about www.headspace.com? They make the claim a few minutes could change your whole day. And if you want to look at other apps, all three of those were uh, deemed best meditation apps of 2018. But if you want to get the full list, um, look at healthline.com, www.healthline.com slash health slash mental dash health slash top dash meditation dash iphone dash android dash apps hope you got that because i don't know that i can repeat it a second time but there's an app for mindfulness for meditation to help be present um to be non-judgmental judgmental about where you've been where you are where you're going in reality you don't worry about where you've been And you're not worried about where you're going really all you're focused in is where i am right now now i i tried mindfulness one time um (laughs) in san diego at a conference um and it was in a busy room uh the doors to the hallway were open unfortunately Um, i was speaking shortly thereafter you would think that mindfulness would have been perfect to get me kind of set straight but I just could not quiet my mind. Um, the instructor was really doing a great job in trying to guide us through things, but my mind was racing, um, so I couldn't do it. And then, uh, dinner a couple weeks ago, somebody told me that they were uh, they had just completed a seven day silent meditation retreat. <sighs> I can't go five minutes without (laughs) saying something. So doing a silent meditation retreat um, just is unconscionable um, to me. I I just, I I can't figure that out. The gentleman, though, took his girlfriend. His girlfriend was apparently kind of like me. It's like, seriously, you want me to be quiet for seven days? And she kind of fought and she talked (laughs) for the first two or three days. But that third or fourth day, all of a sudden, she started seeing that not talking, Focusing on where she was at the moment. Focusing on breathing. Reading. Doing whatever she needed to do. Not conversing with other people. Because you know the weird thing about having a conversation with someone? Is that sometimes you're spending as much time thinking about what you're going to say in response as to what they're talking about. Active listening is difficult. Active listening is Really giving them the time of day, giving them your full focus. That's work. What if if you spent that work just really focusing on you? So his girlfriend eventually kind of dug it. And by the seventh day, she was totally into it. She went from, are you kidding me? To, wow. But I have my ways of mindfulness. I do deep breathing. I speak in public. So a lot of people. I don't get nervous anymore. Um, when I first started this, uh, I would hyperventilate if there were four people in a room, much less 500 people. Now I can get in, in front of hundreds of people and I just don't think about it. But every once in a while, I get in a circumstance and been sitting there for a while. There's other speakers in front of me. You know, it's a complicated subject and I'm, I'm not sure that... Uh, yeah, I'm going to be able to articulate it properly or there's some you know, some stress because I'm focused on an interactive session where I want the audience to participate, um, you know, for 30 minutes or 60 minutes or even an hour and a half. And do I have the ability to do that and will there be responsive? and blah, 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 blah. And I look down at my Fitbit and I tap, tap it until it shows me my pulse rate and my pulse rate's not at the resting position. Um, It's kind of racing a little bit. And, you know, it's like, you know what? I just need to take a deep breath in and exhale. A deep breath in and exhale. And I just focus on the breathing. And it's amazing I have looked at my Fitbit and my heart rate went from 85 to 60 just by doing that. Sometimes I go to my quiet, happy place. If you, you're familiar with Happy Gilmore, my happy place. I think about positive places where I have been, positive outcomes. When I'm not feeling great, either physically or psychologically, emotionally, every once in a while, um, you know, you get to that point where it's like, you know what, am I doing the right thing? Am I having an impact? Am I just kind of going through the motions? Do people really like me? Deep existential type questions. I come back to the point where I had positive affirmation, where someone responded to a LinkedIn post and and said, thank you for what you're doing. Or someone shook my hand in private and says, Mark, I really admire you. Or just the concept of me seeing my kids grow up to be independent and self-sufficient and great adults themselves. Going to my happy place helps. For me, prayer helps. It helps me center. It helps me see beyond myself. It helps me understand that what I'm doing right now doesn't necessarily mean that that's the end result. This is a journey, not a destination. We are never at the destination until we're buried six feet under. We're constantly on a journey. So I guess when you think about the deep breathing and going to my happy place and prayer, that's mindfulness, right? It's not staring at crystals in Sedona, Arizona, but it certainly is a way to manage my emotions, to manage my thoughts, to change my beliefs, even to change my reality. My reality goes from anxious and stress and a lack of self-esteem and a lack of appreciation. And a, am I doing this the am I doing this the right way? Am I doing the right thing at all? Am I a good dad? Am I a good husband? Am I a good son? All those things kind of go. You know what? I'm good. Now may be bad. Now may not be pleasant. But I've got plenty of experience, plenty of examples of where I went from bad or uncomfortable to great and very comfortable. It's just a function of where you're at. So mindfulness is really important. Now I mentioned prayer. That's spiritual, right? We're talking about psycho-spiritual on that. But spiritual, when it comes to the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model, doesn't necessarily mean religion. It's transcendent elements. It's something that's bigger than you. So you get perspective on who you are and where you're going and what you can accomplish. It's a search for ultimate meaning, for ultimate purpose, for significance. It gives meaning to the suffering. And by having meaning to that suffering, it potentially makes it more bearable. Because you understand that potentially what's bad today may be good tomorrow. It may not necessarily be good for you, but it could be good for others. One of the things I have seen for those who are dealing with substance use disorder and are in active recovery for a day, a week, a month, a year, 15 years, it doesn't matter how long, once they are are in active recovery, almost to a person they want to pay it forward because they realize their example their experience can help other people that suffering that they went through can actually help someone else that's going through the same issue and you can be the example you can be the shining light to help them through and say if i can do it you can do it there's a spiritual component to that, There's positive thinking associated with that spiritual. And then it's tapping into and respecting the patient's belief system. So whether you're a Christian, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're an atheist, whether you're an agnostic, doesn't matter. There's a spiritual component to this of the bigger than you thing. And a, a clinician must respect that belief system not impose their belief system on them but understand that this person has a spiritual component to them and tapping into that spiritual component and enhancing and encouraging that concept that ultimate meaning or purpose and and significance and 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 Giving meaning to suffering so that it can become bearable and it can potentially be a light unto other people that this situation it's bigger than you and in the big picture of things, this is a small blip on the on this the timeline of your life you need to understand that we need to encourage that and help people figure that out so the bottom line to all of this in successfully managing chronic pain is that you need to manage your thoughts and behavior. That's why the biomedical treatment model is hampered. It isn't optimal because you ignore the stuff that's going on between your ears. It's important to understand that those psychological those emotional those spiritual those things are important to help people deal with life to deal with life when it's good to deal with life when it's not so good in pain it's important to have perspective to understand what impact, what influence your thoughts have, and how those thoughts can impact and create behaviors that actually create more problems. So as we're talking about the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model, don't undersell the importance of the psychological spiritual component. If you ignore those, you will not be as successful in managing your pain. I'm excited. Hopefully you lasted this long through the podcast. The next one and final one in this series will be podcast number three, where we'll address the social economic circumstances that can impact the management of chronic pain. In other words, what happens at home. So there's something that physically happens to your body, the biological component, that has to be fixed at times. But you can't stop there. You have to incorporate what happens between the ears. And the next podcast will address what happens at home. How does your social circumstance, how do your economic circumstances, things that are a byproduct of your choice or maybe that you had absolutely nothing to do with and you're stuck. How do those things influence your management of pain? How can you figure out a way to properly address those so that you're dealing with the whole person? Hopefully, these series of podcasts will be helpful to you in opening your mind on how to properly manage chronic pain. I don't know who you are. I don't know if you're a clinician who's taken the Hippocratic Oath, who wants to help and heal and maybe even save lives. I don't know if you're an individual in chronic pain that's seeking ways of better managing this. The drugs that you have been taking are actually creating more harm than good. Your attitude, your emotions, your beliefs, your behavior almost creates more problems in managing your pain than they're solving. I don't know if you're a caregiver of someone who is helping someone manage their chronic pain. Talk about an important and difficult and complicated job of being outside of the circumstances, but helping someone navigate them. I don't know what role you play and why you're listening to this podcast, but I really want you to think bio, psycho, social, spiritual, spiritual, treatment model the whole person if you want to manage your pain we've got to take that into account this is Mark Pugh thank you for spending your time with me you've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.